Father, we would humble our hearts in your presence now. We sit before you as a needy people, a weak people, but Lord, we want to be willing to follow after you. And so as we open our Bibles, it's with anticipation that we will hear from you and that you will give us the strength through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to put into practice that which we learn today from your Holy Word. Thank you, Lord, for how your Bible never goes out of dial, never goes out of date. Thank you for how it precisely and accurately points us to Jesus, how in a practical way there's always application to be made for how to live for Jesus. And so we sit with ears ready to hear and hearts ready to go and discipline ourselves unto obedience. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, will you take your Bibles, please, and on our way to Genesis chapter 18, begin in Mark's gospel, chapter 9. We're going to continue our Genesis series this morning, and we have in Mark chapter 9 a biblical illustration to set the stage for what we're going to find, particularly in Sarah's life in Genesis chapter 18. There is a a gentleman in Mark chapter 9 who has an encounter with Jesus, and I wonder if you can see yourself in this man's thinking. The story perhaps will be familiar to you. It's Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. And you have to picture that this man and some a crowd of people have gathered around a small group of Christ's disciples, and then Jesus with his disciples is walking up to that group, and there's a little bit of hubbub going on. Let's read the story, and let's see if we can't uh, uh, put in context the feeling or the sense uh, that we want for Genesis chapter 18 this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. When they came to the other disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Let's just stop for a minute and let's get a sense of this dear man. This precious little boy who never talks who has these spells that come over him, that he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, his body goes rigid, and this is attributed to some evil spirit that is in him. Having heard of the reputation of our Lord Jesus and his followers, this father wanted to see if they could help him with his problem. Let's see what happens. Notice now, first of all, Jesus' response to what this man tells him. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, 
it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has it been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine looking at the Lord Jesus and saying, If you could do something, Jesus got that. And look what he says. If you can, verse 23, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that's the point that was in my mind as I was thinking about Sarah sitting in her tent, hearing once again that she was going to have a baby in her old age. And laughing out loud. We'll read about that in just a minute. Can you identify with this man at all? Can you identify with knowing that God can do anything? Is anything too hard for God is in our passage in Genesis 18. And you can turn there now. Genesis 18. And let's read our text there for today. But can you also identify with this poor conflicted man where he says, Yes, I believe. Lord, help mine unbelief. Boy, that's uh, hitting close to home, don't you think, for us sometimes? We want to believe. We want to see God at work. We want to take Him at His word. But sometimes when we look around at the circumstances of our lives, we become overwhelmed and we use our intellect and we use our emotional grid and we use our framework of decision-making and we say... When you're 90 years old, you just don't have babies. So I don't know what God's talking about, but I really doubt that it's going to happen. I don't know what application you can make in your life tonight, Doug, this morning, but in Genesis chapter 18, we have once again just a fascinating story. And um, I'm, gonna I'm warning you that uh, Genesis um, will, will not calm down as far as just the the extreme stories that we're going to encounter. And in fact, um, the strangers that enter Abraham's life today that we'll read about in just a moment have come for a specific purpose. One reason is to confront Sarah's doubting and unbelief, but the other is for them to stand with Abraham and look over the plain and to warn him, to warn his nephew Lot to get out of there because God is going to bring his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an incredibly awful story that's coming ahead. And throughout the book of Genesis, we have just illustration after illustration of God at work in people's lives in, in sometimes extreme ways. I hope you'll make a point of being faithful and that you're receiving well the messages that God has for us. Let's read now our text this morning from Genesis chapter 18. And... Uh, we know that last week in Genesis chapter 17, we've had the mark of the covenant and God has commanded Abraham to be circumcised. He circumcised his whole male staff, his son Ishmael. We have to believe from that, that as Sarah saw Abraham, her husband, lining up his staff and circumcising them, circumcising Ishmael, circumcising himself, that she had to have at least said, what in the world are you doing? 
And that he had to have said to her in complete detail and recounted for her his entire experience with El Shaddai of chapter 17. And that God in chapter 17 had appeared as God the Almighty to Abraham, reminding him, out of you shall come a people, out of you I will give a a place, and all nations will be blessed through, through you. And he adds layers of information, and in chapter 17, he calls Abraham to blameless living before him. He calls him to put God's mark on him through circumcision. And yet in our story here, and this probably chapter 18 and chapter 17 are probably not divided by a very long span of time. Uh, for example, look down at, um, at verse 21 in chapter 17. He says, remember the Lord is telling Abraham, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Specifically, Sarah, through her physical body, will bear a son, and it's Isaac, and he's the son of promise. When we get uh, to chapter 18, we see and skip your, let your eyes fall down to verse 14 of chapter 18. When the Lord is speaking to Abraham, and Sarah is in her tent with just a, evidently a fabric of skin between them, and she can hear what's happening, she says, The the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. And so they're still talking this framework of one year apart. And so we find chapter 18 begins with Abraham sitting in the heat of the day with the sun at its height. And it's hot and he's resting, perhaps even dozing at the front of his tent underneath some trees. Chapter 18, verse 1, let's read through verse 15 and uh, let's see what we have in our text today. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham, verse 6, hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sihas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and he selected a choice tender calf and he gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk in the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said, and then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old. We know they were 190 at this time. He was 100, she was 90. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid 
So she lied and she said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? You know, we tend to be a little bit hard on Sarah, critical that she would doubt. As I've expressed earlier, she had to have had the information given to her that God had a plan and that God was going to work her plan. But how many times do we have some kind of promise from God, some kind of confidence that we know God will work, and we look at our circumstances We look at what we see to be the reality around us and through the grid of our own intellect, through the grid of our own emotional framework, we make decisions and we say, there is no way this is going to happen. I'm 90 years old. To say that I'm going to have a baby, tee tee, that's laughable. It's laughable. I want to break this section down into three parts this morning. I know from experience of a couple hours ago that we're going to make it through one of those points. And uh, Janet says, why don't you practice your messages? I said, well, partly because they have to be done before 8 o'clock on Sunday morning so you can practice them. And the other part is they never come out the way I have planned anyway. So let's see what we have here. But I think in this passage we have three interesting dynamics at play. The first is an observation of what I'm calling, number one, the case for generous hospitality. And we see here in Abraham a model for hospitality. And I want to talk to you about that a little bit. It just, uh, some things clicked in my brain. Secondly, we are then going to look at Sarah and we're going to see the doubt that comes from the obvious impossibility of our lives. The doubt of obvious impossibility. You see, that's what happens to us in our faith, isn't it? We look at the circumstances and we know these things are impossible. Therefore, I literally doubt God and I might even laugh at his promises. And foolishly, she lied even to try to cover it. But then thirdly, I love that question that the Lord says to Abraham. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard? And we have the God of endless capability, don't we? We have a God of inexhaustible capability. And that's where we need to look, isn't it? Get our eyes off of our circumstances and unto the Lord. So let's look at the first part of our message this morning as we see Abraham has these mysterious guests appear to him. Well, there's Abraham sitting at the entrance of his tent underneath the trees there. It's a spot that we've had identified for us in a couple other times in the passage. And Abraham has established his home there. He's a sojourner, so he lives in tents. We know from uh, the geographical climate there that they will have stretches or seasons. It might be a time of the year when, you know, for 45 days, the, the coolest it ever got was 91 degrees at night. And it averaged 114 every day for 40 days or something. And so they had sort of a practice of shutting down. And this, it was seasonal. And they would sit down and find a cool, shady place. And wait out the heat of the day. Work in the early mornings. Work in the later afternoons. Abraham's there at his tent. It occurred to me that he could, timing-wise, he could possibly still be resting there, recovering from his own circumcision. I don't know. I don't think a lot of time has gone by. Perhaps he's dozing and perhaps he... 
awakened himself with his own head jerking the weight of it. And then he looks and there's three strangers. And we don't know much about these strangers. But we do know that once again, Abraham is going to have an encounter face to face with the Lord. The NIV doesn't do a good job. The King James and the New King James does a better job. The word is Adonai. It should be Lord in all capital letters. In the NIV, it's a little case Lord. When he goes up and says, my Lord, and it is Adonai, he identifies him. And somehow Abraham understood that this was once again a visit from God himself. I don't know what the significance is of three. I don't, wouldn't make that into the Trinity. The text gives no indication of that. We know that these three strangers are going to hang around. Abraham is going to have a conversation with one of them directly as the Lord. And he does in this text as well. And it says that he's the Lord. And that's why we know it's the Lord because he says it repeatedly in the passage. And when he's going to, he has his dialogue in the last half of chapter 18 about how many righteous people have to live in Sodom for God to spare his wrath. He goes back and forth in conversation with the Lord. These are the three that will then be at Lot's porch and the men of Sodom will try to grab them. Some fascinating stuff coming up. So here he is and Abraham looks up and notice what happens. Abraham looked up and he saw three men, verse 2, standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent. He bows to the ground. Something in Abraham immediately identified them as the Lord. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, Adonai, it should be capital Lord right there, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. Let me get you something. And he goes on and he picks out the calf and so forth. And as I was trying to take this passage and figure out how to um, break it down and look at it, it occurred to me that, that Abraham, very much for us, provides a practical illustration of what is in the church even today a direct command that we be hospitable. I know that in this context of the Eastern mind that it was cultural. There were no Motel 6s in which to leave the light on for you. There was no sheets for a quick stop, no McDonald's drive through And so in the culture of the day, when there were travelers, they, this was one sojourner, a traveler to another, he would look up, he'd see people traveling, come on over, let us refresh you, let us take, take rest, let me get some water, you can wash your feet, you'll feel better, and let us refresh and encourage you. Let's take a minute and go to the New Testament and let's just receive some instruction from the model, number one, that Abraham provides for generous hospitality. Let's begin in Hebrews chapter 13. Can we do that? I want to look up three verses in our New Testament because sometimes I think this is the importance of this is easily overlooked. And, and this um, came to me very quickly. I want to ultimately here draw five observations from Abraham's hospitality that we can apply to our own lives. And in Hebrews chapter 13, there's an interesting verse, and I don't know, you can't prove that the writer of Hebrews had Abraham in mind when he wrote this. We know that the writer of Hebrews would have been very cognizant and aware and knowledgeable of Abraham. He would have been very studied. He would have known uh, the Pentateuch. He would have known uh, about all about Abraham as a model of faith, and he would have known this story. But look what it says. 
Keep on loving each other. Verse 1, chapter 13, Hebrews. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Verse 2, look at this. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, isn't that interesting? And and in contrast with Abraham's culture, our culture is just the opposite, isn't it? it? Wouldn't it be something to get to heaven someday and to have some angel walk up to you and say, I know you. I had had a cup of coffee and a donut at your table. You had the best lasagna at your house. You helped me change my tire. That's amazing. What is he saying there? I don't know what that means exactly other than what it says. Entertain strangers, and by so doing, some of you have even entertained angels. Now, does God sometimes bring people our way to sort of test us? But it's interesting to me that in the New Testament, hospitality is commanded. Hospitality is a natural outflow of Christ-like love for one another. In our culture, though, it's the opposite, isn't it, of Abraham. You don't look up at a, soldier, at a stranger cutting through your back 40 and say, Hey, you guys, come on over to our, uh, you know, our fire pit here. You know, let me get you some curds and some milk and let's slaughter the fatted calf. We get some water and wash your feet. We teach our children, what about strangers? Don't look at them. Just, just keep walking. And if somebody comes to the door and knocks on the door and you don't know who they are, you don't let them in your house. At least not without arming up first, right? Get the heat, honey. Somebody's at the door. Never know what they want. And we certainly don't pick up hitchhikers, do we? There's a stranger. My good friend, Greg Alderman, I was thinking about him. He just took the pastorate of Central Chapel left Abingdon, Virginia. You know, Greg has been here many times. and we're, He and his wife and my wife and I are very good friends from Bible college days. And when we were in Bible college, and some of you know this story, on the West Virginia Turnpike one night, he pulled over to pitch, pick up a hitchhiker. It was dark, dreary night, and he was just trying to show hospitality to a stranger. The guy jumps in his car, takes his hand, and slams Greg's head over against the glass wall and jams a gun into his rib cage. And Greg's a big, strong, powerlifting guy. He did whatever the guy wanted. Guy drove him clear down into South Carolina, where he finally let him go in the middle of the night down there. Took Greg's keys and threw him out in the darkness in the grass between the highways. And Greg finally, on his hands and knees in the dark, found his keys and got out of there. It's quite a story. And we said, don't you ever. I can remember Janet, because I used to pick up hitchhikers and witness to them. Man, he'd get in my car, I can talk to him about what I want. And I did that a lot when I was in college. I had a beat up old Dotson, some guy hitchhiking. I pick him up, talk to him about Jesus. He can get out if he wants, but I'm going 60 mile an hour around the curves. <laughs> What's he going to do? Grab the steering wheel and kill us both. I go to heaven. I don't know where he goes. After that, you better stop picking up hitchhikers. And that's the way we're trained, isn't it? And sometimes I think that we get that way even in-house, don't we? Where we're not careful. Let me show you a couple more verses from the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4. Can we look there quickly? 1 Peter chapter 4. And look at, beginning with verse 7. 1 Peter... Peter is writing to persecuted Christians in this book. People who have been um, dispersed because of persecution for their faith. And Peter is encouraging them not to lose their Christian grace. And he's giving them instruction on priorities for living in the last days. 
The Lord could return at any time. How are we then supposed to live? 1 Peter 4, 7, and he says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Boy, that's good, isn't it? Now look at verse 9. Underline this. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. One of the things Peter wanted the believers to do was take good care of each other. Offer hospitality. It's commanded. Hospitality is a Christian grace commanded to the church. Turn to Romans chapter 12, and this is our final verse on this topic. And then we'll go back to Genesis 18 to flesh it out a little bit more. Romans chapter 12, take a look at this. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Romans 12, 9. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Boy, what a list, huh? But now look at verse 13 and underline this one. Share with God's people who are in need. Okay, so young people who are driving and your parents have told you not to pick up hitchhikers, if you know they're of the household of faith, you can pick them up with your parents' permission. It says, share with God's people who are in need. Notice the two-word sentence next. Practice hospitality. There it is. Hospitality is a Christian grace that is to be evidenced in the church today. It is given as a direct instruction to us. Isn't that interesting? And that caught my attention. And as I was looking at the beginning of Genesis chapter 18, now turn back there with me, please. Very quickly in my thinking, five observations came to my mind from Abraham's model. Can I... Take the rest of our time now and just give you more encouragement on living in obedience to the New Testament instruction that we are to be hospitable. It's easy for us to overlook this trait. At the same time, some of you are tremendous in the grace of hospitality. Here Abraham is sitting at his tent. The strangers come by. We've already commented that it is the Lord. We've already commented that it was cultural to offer hospitality. But I want you to notice in verses 3 through 5 that he immediately suggests that they not pass by and that they allow him to bring water for their feet and rest in the shade during the heat of the day. Principle number one that came to my mind about Abraham's hospitality is this. Number one, hospitality is always about the refreshment of our guests. Hospitality is always about the refreshment of of our guests. You say, well, that's kind of a no-brainer. That's hospitality by definition, isn't it? You know, but the idea is, is that sometimes we're more worried about ourselves than we are our guests, and so we miss opportunities to be hospitable. You know how it is. The house isn't quite clean enough to receive guests. We didn't dust and vacuum this week. Do you know that almost always, unless it's really horrendous and there's like fleas jumping from the dog to the couch and 
you know, and the toilet's just gross. Most of the time, no one else sees your dirt. Hardly. And, and if you invite someone into your house, do you know that they're just glad to be there? And you, you say, sit down. Let, let me serve you. If you focus on them as your special guests and that hospitality is about them, don't worry about what you have to offer. They don't care about your house. They, they don't care if your lawn didn't get mowed and edged. They don't care if there's weeds in your yard. It's nothing but your pride that's going to get hurt anyway if they see it. It doesn't hurt a thing. You offer hospitality with what you have. It is about the refreshment of your guests. Don't let little things keep you from that. Number two, notice what Abraham does. Abraham goes up to them and he bows down. Now, granted, he recognizes evidently that this is deity. He bows down and two times in verses 4b through verse 5, he calls himself their servant. 3b, your servant. And then he goes on to the end of 5, your servant. Let your servant serve you. Observation number two about hospitality is that it requires a servant's heart. Hospitality requires a servant's heart. Did you catch, was it in the first Peter passage when it said to offer hospitality, to not do it grudgingly? You know, it is very difficult to make a guest comfortable when you resent their presence in your home. You know how to change this. You become the servant. You just serve them. It is about their refreshment. It is to encourage them in their spirit. It is to renew them. And you just serve them. And Abraham provided a great model for that. Immediately, he comes out of this sleepy nap and he immediately kicks it into high gear and he just prepares the camp for them. Let us serve you. Principle number three is in verse six. Abraham hurries into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he says, get three siahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Now, that's a lot of flour. That's five gallons of flour. In the early service, off the top of my head, I said, that's a drywall bucket of mud full of flour. And everybody laughed. But that's how I picture it. Don't you use plastic empty drywall buckets for everything around your house? The water, the dog, and to put weeds in? We got like six empty drywall buckets in our garage. Take one of those, fill it full of fine fine flour, fill it full of fine flour, (laughs) and bake bread for your guest. That's a lot. But you know what? It occurred to me, principle number three, or observation number three on hospitality, number three is that hospitality often creates significant demands on your wife. So you do need to be careful a little bit. About 13 ladies on the way out, though, said, but you know Sarah had a whole bunch of servants. And she just sat there and said, bake that bread. (laughs) Because I was commending Sarah for not talking back to her husband. And Peter does that as well in 1 Peter 3 and uses her as a model of what a Christian woman should be of beauty from the inside out of a grace And she's commended for her obedience to her master, Abraham, who also happens to be her husband. That kind of language doesn't fly nowadays. Well, I think that Sarah 
knew she had a part to play, and she did her part. But I do think we men need to be careful because we're the ones sometimes that'll do that, won't we? Hey, you guys, come on over. And now my wife has to do all this work. So you better jump in. You know, it occurred to me too, just on a practical note, and I'm no expert on this. We have had many people in our home through the years, and we have a guest book that is dozens and dozens and dozens of names of people who've been in our guest room. And, um, but you can always do it more, can't you? And always, there's, we're so busy, and we seem to overlook it often when we shouldn't. But I was thinking, you know something you could do? Is you could get a meal that you know how to fix, that's kind of quick. You know, I don't know what your thing is. You can make some good spaghetti or, you know, you can make like a stromboli or something really fast and have all the stuff there. Why not have a few cans of whatever it takes, you know? Cream of mushroom soup, that's good, and some toast. And just have it there. It's like your quickie guest hospitality meal. You all got ideas going through your mind right now. All you ladies just kicked it into gear. Oh, I know. And you keep it on the shelf, and you have this meal so that when the guests appear on the horizon and you say, come in, let us refresh you, let us serve you, you can go to the shelf and you can say, rest, have a refreshing drink of cold water, and in a few minutes, supper will be served. Do you know that people aren't looking for a feast like Abraham gives his people here? But that leads us to the next point. Notice what Abraham does in verses 7 and 8. He runs to the herd. He selects a choice tender calf. He gives it to the servant, hurries him to prepare it. Remember, Abraham had at least 318 men. Remember when he, when he sorted them up, when he armed them up, and they went and released Lot? He then brought some curds and milk. Curds is probably, think of, uh, I suspect this is like yogurt made out of goat's milk. Good, huh? In the desert with no refrigeration. Good stuff. <laughs> and the milk and the calf that had been prepared. But this is good stuff in this culture, this day, at that time, and this day. Mariko will get you some curds. You'll enjoy it, okay? Or Pat, maybe. Now, you know what? Obviously, obviously, Abraham put a huge spread in front of these guys. He kills a calf. He bakes all this bread. There's only three guys there. Principle number four, observation number four on hospitality is be generous in your hospitality. When you have opportunity to entertain, do you make it a practice to be generous? Don't hold back on your guests. Honor them. When you have time to plan and prepare, pick the nicest choices of pork loin, the nice boneless chicken breast. Make your favorite dish. Honor them. That's what Abraham does. Esteem others higher than yourselves. Finally, notice at the end of, at the end of verse 8, it says, While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. My fifth observation on hospitality is this, as a host, your personal appetite and comfort are secondary. As a host, your personal appetite and comfort are secondary. We've often been at um, 
often, a couple times a year probably, sometimes when they're feeding a guest speaker. Debbie Steplowski is so good to invite me and my family over to join them for dinner. And when I thought of Abraham standing there, making sure his guests were well cared for, that he was refreshing his guests with this beautiful feast he had prepared, I thought, Jeff Steplowski. He'll hardly sit down and eat. Debbie's got this big spread of food on the counter and everybody's eating. And you know what Jeff is doing? He's emptying the trash. He's picking up your dirty plates. He's getting more ice. Would you like this to drink? It's unbelievable. The guy's unbelievable. He wants to encourage and refresh you. I thought, what a good model. Now at our house, when we have guests coming in, do you know what my wife says to me? I want you to be just like Jeff Steplowski tonight. (laughs) Boy, sets a high bar for me. You know, we're going to conclude the message here with a little bit more application, but can I remind you of what we've learned? First of all, when we look in verses 1 through 8 of this passage, before we get to Sarah's doubting and God's inexhaustible ability, we have the case for generous hospitality. We have five observations from Abraham as a model. Number one, hospitality is always about the refreshment of our guests. Number two, hospitality requires a servant's heart. Number three, hospitality often creates significant demands on your wife. Number four, be generous in your hospitality. Number five, as a host, your personal appetite and comfort are secondary. Just some practical pastoral advice for you this morning based upon Abraham's model that we would live out and fulfill our responsibility to be hospitable in the church today. It's commanded. It's commanded. But you know, as we conclude, I have another picture in my mind of hospitality. It's, it's poor, needy people out there, lost in their sin. And there's a heavenly father who has spread a beautiful banquet table. And he has said, come and dine at my table. Come. Come feast in my presence. In my presence is fullness of joy. Let me take the burden of your sin And let's drop it at the foot of the cross and come in and let me refresh your soul. Let me have you lie down in green pastures. Let my rod and my staff take care of your enemies. And what do so many of us do? I don't need God. And we're out there feasting in the dumpster, living under a bridge somewhere in our rags, so to speak, spiritually. And Jesus has already carried all that sin. And the the hospitable heavenly father says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you ever come to the guest house of your heavenly father? Do you know that you have a bedroom there? Do you know that you have a place at the banquet table? Do you know that you can find rest in your soul and get rid of your sin? Because Jesus Christ, one day, on a hill called Mount Calvary, spread out his arms and let those crusty old Roman soldiers nail him to the cross. And God, in Christ, put all our sin on him. And he became sin for us who knew no sin. 
that his righteousness might become our righteousness so that we can enter the presence of our Heavenly Father. You talk about a model for hospitality. It's our Heavenly Father. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Is the Lord really your shepherd? Do you have a place at his table? Listen, this building, as I said, has been really busy. We have kept Rich and Terry George hopping, keeping this place going. Just a few hours ago, an old man lay right here where the choir stood in his casket, where the bride and groom stood just 24 hours later. And some of you think, I'm going to be an old man and they'll have me in my casket and everybody will sing and it'll be great. But some of you might not live to be an old man. But whether you live to be an old man or whether you die young, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you entered into His presence with a confidence knowing your sin is forgiven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Have you experienced His hospitality? He says, come in, let me wash you clean and let me refresh you. Today, I encourage you to examine your heart as to whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, to whether or not you have a place at your Heavenly Father's banquet table. Don't let many more minutes go by in this service without saying something like this. Father, spiritually speaking, I'm in the dumpster. I'm under the bridge in rags. But today, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask you to forgive me of my sin and make me your child. Welcome me to your table. I don't deserve it, but by your grace, there's a place set for me. You'll even show me what all the forks are for. Why don't you do that today? Why don't you do that? Stop thinking you're good enough on your own and let Jesus pay the price for your sin. That's why he went to the cross, was buried and rose again for our justification. Amen. Let's pray. And so, Father, we conclude today reminding ourselves of our obligation to discipline ourselves to the obedience of hospitality and that we would open our lives, our homes, our tables, our guest rooms, our swimming pools, our decks, our summer homes to the refreshment and the encouragement of others. not begrudgingly, but out of a deep-seated love for you and for the church. And we're also reminded this morning, Father, of your banquet table and that it's not an automatic seating arrangement, but you have invited us in Christ to come into your presence. And so, Lord, right now I pray that if there's anyone here dressed in rags and eating out of the garbage can, that they'll, they'll stop that and they'll confess their sinfulness and they'll receive your hospitality in Christ, paying the price for our sin out of your love and kindness. Thank you, Father. Draw men unto yourself. Draw hearts and minds to you, Lord. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Help us to recognize that in Christ there is forgiveness of sin and it's only in Christ that there is forgiveness of sin. Father, help us to live out these realities 
that a watching world would see the beautiful love that goes on in our church and in our homes. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.